Do you remember your first college roommate? For many of you, that roommate lasted one semester or one year. What I want to tell you today is that sometimes God uses unassuming roommates to change the course of Christian history. And it's unbelievable how God will work in that way. We are square in the middle of this series on the five soli of the Protestant Reformation, these core realities of the Gospel. We started two weeks ago and said that the Gospel is a message of faith alone, sola fide, that there is no means of acquiring God's affection, that it's only through our faith in Christ. And then last week we talked about sola gratia, It's a message of grace alone that God lavishly pours out His miraculous grace on us to save us. It's like we sang earlier in the song that on our own we would never choose God. But it's because of God's grace that enables it to be possible. Now, when the Reformers, sola fide was really the the groundbreaking move for Martin Luther, but as he began to sort of tease this out and try to figure out what all of this meant, he came to one conclusion and one conclusion only. That the faith had to be in someone and the grace had to be from someone. And so he came to the idea and the recognition, and which should be completely understandable for all of us, that the core sola was solus Christus. If you're wondering why all of the, uh, the vowels are changing, is because Latin is a crazy language, right? Solus Christus, that it's Christ alone. How do we receive grace from God? By Christ. Who is our faith in? Christ. Christ is central to this whole reality. And as they began to figure this whole process out, at the beginning part of it, there was no differentiating it from the church of the day, but as they began to really think about all of the ramifications, it's where massive change began to happen in the church structure itself. And no reformer proclaimed Solus Christus more than a man named John Calvin. John Calvin was a Frenchman. He was born in the early 1500s. At the age of 12, this guy's like Doogie Howser, he went to university. And uh, he was going to study to become a priest, but he was really not interested in that stuff. He was, you know... A, intellectually believing in the gospel and went to mass and all of these things, but he wasn't interested. He became very interested in the humanities and distinguished himself early on as a writer uh, commentating on philosophers. Uh, and he was so interested in this and so interested in a career in this that he would literally walk the streets of his town and pass the bookstores to see if the stack of his books was decreasing, to know if his books were selling, to see if he was good at this stuff. And John Calvin did this. Of course, in 1517, uh, when Calvin is only, what, eight years old, so four years before he leaves for university, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. And over time, the ideas of Luther and the Reformation begin to spread because of the printing press and other realities. John Calvin, as he's studying for his master's degree, has a roommate. And his roommate comes into contact with the message of the Reformation from Martin Luther. And to Calvin, this is nuts. 
First of all, he's not really interested in that stuff, and it's not what he's heard. But as his roommate persists, Calvin is converted to the ideas of the Reformation. And this is what Calvin later would write of himself. That God, in that moment, turned around his heart and brought it to himself. So Calvin's crazy roommate is the only means by which John Calvin becomes and is who he is. You have a person like that in your life? Maybe it's not your college roommate. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher or a public school teacher or a parent. But for their influence of Christian faith in your life, you would have walked a completely different path. History loves to write about Calvin. Almost no one remembers Calvin's roommate. You might be the roommate. right? That might be the, the mission God has for you or for me. But imagine the course of history if the roommate wasn't faithful to the call of God on his life. Imagine it. So here's Calvin, who is radically transformed, and now he doesn't want to become a priest. He wants to become a scholar. He wants to, to take on the ways of Luther, and to under, he wants to disseminate this because France is largely going the way of the, of the established church, and he wants to make sure that these ideas penetrate church. He wants to, to be for France what Luther was for Germany. But he realizes he can't make that happen from within France, so he's got to get out and go study somewhere else and then bring it back. Calvin becomes the core reformer who is always harping on this reality of solus Christus. We'll come back to Calvin's story in a minute. In the meantime, if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. It is very difficult to find a central passage of Scripture that deals with the, the reality of solus Christus, of Christ alone. I think 1 John uh, does it in a very straightforward and simple way. But really, if you really want to come to grips with this idea, you need to read and reread the book of Hebrews constantly. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is about. And so we'll be referencing it time and time again. But for us to go through it like that would be, would be difficult. So let's read in 1 John uh, chapter 1. I think I might have said 2. But let's start in chapter 1, verse 5. We'll read into chapter 2. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, then we make Him out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. For the Reformers and for us, really from all of Scripture, from all of Christian history, the core idea of what Jesus only is is that Jesus is our only Savior, right? Jesus is our only Savior. What does John write here? If we confess our sins and believe in Christ, that we'll be saved, right? That He'll purify us from all sins and unrighteousness. This is what Christ alone means at the core. And of course, there was no differentiating this from what the church believed in the day. Listen to how John plays this out, right? He starts with the problem, doesn't he? 
He does it in, a, in an interesting way. But he starts with the problem that there is this great divide between God and man. What does he say about God? God is light, and in him there can be no darkness at all. Right? So we have this statement about the holiness of God, and that would be wonderful if he didn't go into the next few statements about us. Because right? he says that all men have sinned. And oh, by the way, if you want to suggest that you haven't sinned, then John calls you a liar. And if you want to persist in saying that you haven't sinned, then what John says is not only are you a liar, but you're calling God a liar. So his point being that God is holy, that he is light, and in him no darkness can be, and yet all of humanity is nothing but darkness. So he presents us with this problem that the gospel starts with, that humanity can't be with God because of the reality of sin in our life. And he creates the problem in such a way that necessitates for us to need a Savior. Because God is light and no darkness can be in him. That's a permanent statement. And man is darkness, is sinful. And if we would suggest ever anything otherwise, then we're a liar. So we've got a problem that we can't fix. God has a standard that we can't reach. How can God maintain his standard and therefore be reliable and just. Because God would not be just if he just said, okay, I'm going to give up my standard. I'll just let you all in. But how can we achieve God's standard? So we're instantly called to look out of ourselves. And John points to the name of Jesus. He calls him the Son that is Jesus. So we're instantly called to look for Jesus in this unique way. And this is the way Scripture always presents him, that he is what is called the God-man. Have you heard this before? The God-man, that he is both fully divine and fully human. We cannot believe anything other about Jesus. We can't just say Jesus was human and not divine. Then if that's true, the gospel doesn't work. Likewise, we can't say Jesus is just God and not human. If that is true, then the gospel doesn't work. And people have been arguing for either side for a long, long, long time. And Orthodox Christianity has been saying, no, no. He's got to be both. Well, you might ask why. Well, think about it for a moment. Humanity needs to be pulled out of humanity's mess. And the only way for that to happen is for humanity to rise out of it. Right? God can't lower his standard. Nothing can be done to alter God's standard. Something has to be done to alter the problem of humanity. And so Paul would write to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that at the proper time, Jesus was born of a woman, human, born under the law. Why does he write that? So that he might redeem the rest of those who are under the law. In other words, Paul is arguing, rightly so, that the only way that humanity can be rescued from this huge problem is for God himself to insert himself, right? Jesus the Son, to insert himself into the mess of humanity and to provide a way out. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says that for him to redeem us, he had to become like us in every way. See, God couldn't just do away with the law. The law had to be fulfilled. And this is exactly what Jesus says of himself. But likewise, Jesus has to be divine because humanity, what is the statement about simple humanity? That it is all fallen. 
that it is all sinful, that it is darkness, and it can't be where light is. And so Jesus' divinity enables him to live a perfect human life, which enables the gospel to be true. Perfection in humanity that enables the salvation of humanity. This is the basis of the gospel, and the reformers were arguing hard for this. It's what theologians have called in later years the hypostatic union of Christ. A crazy name that just simply means that He has to be both God and man. The Council of Chalcedon is where the church formulated this as an orthodox statement. This is what they said. That Jesus is one person with two natures, human and divine. And that both natures are perfectly united and yet completely unmixed. The depth of theology. But it is necessary in order for the Gospel to be true. We can't just believe theologically, oh, that Jesus is our Savior and it's a great story. If He wasn't human, He couldn't be our Savior. And if He wasn't divine, He couldn't have been the human He needed to be. Does that make sense? This is what enables Jesus to be our only Savior. Now, people have argued against this for years and years and years. They've struggled and struggled and struggled with this, right? Jesus, in Scripture, if you believe Scripture very clearly, is human, right? He's born. He feels all kinds of emotions. We said even last week, we talked about the time when Jesus wept. He cried. He has all kinds of physical realities. He's hungry. He's tired. And then, ultimately, he dies a physical death, right? So people, it's been hard-pressed for people to argue that Jesus was merely God and not human. Largely the argument comes that how could this human be divine? And yet, you need to look no farther than the statements of Jesus Himself. What does Jesus say about Himself? The first thing He does, and this is really not a statement about Himself, although it implies a belief about Himself, is He starts forgiving people's sins. Remember this? This is the first thing that the Pharisees are really ticked about. They seriously object to this, as any good Jewish person would have in the day, because only God can forgive sins. What is this man saying about himself? And then later, Jesus would make the bold statements that in fact he is God. What does he say in the Gospel of John? That before Abraham was, I am. And I am, Yahweh, the great name for God himself. So, If we're going to deny the divinity of Jesus, then we have to deny the words of Jesus. The great thinker and writer C.S. Lewis, in his great little book, Mere Christianity, which if you've not read it, you really, really need to read it. It's a fantastic book. Took on this reality. Because there were many in his day that said, you know what, Jesus is a great moral teacher. I love Jesus' teachings, but this nonsense that he is God, I can't believe this. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said that all of humanity is faced with what he called a trilemma. <laughs> Not a dilemma, but a trilemma. In other words, you have three choices about Jesus. Because he clearly said that he was God. So you have three choices about Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar. In other words, and, and this is what C.S. Lewis said, if he's a liar, then he's the devil of hell to lie about something like this. Or he's a lunatic. He's completely deluded. He believes this crazy stuff about himself that's not true. Or he actually is 
who he said he is. There can be no other options. The divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus is what enables the gospel to be true. It enables him to be our only Savior. And that's why Peter, when he's with John and confronted by all of the Jewish authorities shortly after Pentecost, famously says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there's no other means by which man can be saved. He says, there is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. That Jesus is our only Savior. Now listen, you may believe this theologically. And the church believed this. There was no diversion in Reformation thought at this point. Everyone believed that Jesus was our Savior. And yet practically we live a different kind of life. Don't we? Jesus is my spiritual Savior, but I'm going to take care of my physical needs. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus is my Savior when I die, because He's the one that's going to get me into heaven. But right now, I'm counting on my job, my friends, my country my political party. Like, just pause for a moment. We are not a political church, but i got to say this, church, as the the presidential election gears up, right? For many of you, your hopes are riding on this next presidential election. Can I let you in on a little secret? You will not be saved. No matter which party you're looking for. It's It's humanity, right? Even the best intentions aren't going to work. Jesus is your only Savior. We look for for rescue from violence in all kinds of different ways. Well, if we educate better, if we have better policy, if we elect the right people, if we get rid of guns, if we have more guns, all this nonsense, right? No. There's a core problem in the hearts of people, and Jesus is the only Savior. The only Savior. It's Christ alone. Solus Christus. Well, as the Reformers began to think through this even more, and as they truthfully just read the Scriptures for themselves for the first time, they were blown away by all of the ramifications of this simple idea that Jesus is our only Savior. Because they began to see what John writes here, and what the the author of Hebrews writes, and and what is written throughout the Gospels. Listen to this in verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen to this. And the blood of Jesus... His Son purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. They begin to understand that Jesus, if He's our Savior, then He's our only sacrifice. He's our only sacrifice. The blood of Jesus is given, is given here by John and other uh, authors of, of Scripture to say that Jesus is the sole sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you've got to insert yourself right into Old Testament reality or the, or the culture of Jesus' day. There were continual sacrifices given for the forgiveness of sins. They were instituted as part of the law so that people could be covered. They were never truly forgiven, in a sense. They were constantly covered in their sacrifices. What is true all through the New Testament is this idea that Jesus becomes the final and complete sacrifice that is given for the forgiveness of sins. 
forgiveness of sins, not just covering. So Jesus is a substitutionary sacrifice, right? When the people needed a sacrifice to be given, they needed to be forgiven of their sins, when they had done something, when they needed to be cleansed of the Day of Atonement, whatever it was, they gathered a, uh, an animal, and the animal was sacrificed in their place, right? It was a substitution. The animal for me. Way back based on the truth of what happened when Abraham was told to sacrifice his son. And God provided a substitute. A, a prominent theologian was once asked, and imagine being asked this question. He was asked, well, in your opinion, what is the most important word in the entire New Testament? What's the most important word in the entire New Testament? Uh, you could go with many words, right? Jesus, that would be a good one to go with. Gospel, Yongalia. He went with the Greek preposition huper, which means in behalf of. The Jesus sacrifice was in behalf of us. A substitute for us. Paul goes on, or excuse me, John goes on to write here in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that he is what he calls our atoning sacrifice. Now you may have a translation that goes for the big theological word. He is our propitiation. And propitiation, can you guess what it means? Atoning sacrifice, yeah. He's our atoning sacrifice. In other words, he's the sacrifice of atonement. Now what is that pointing to? Well, once a year in the Jewish culture, they had what was called the Day of Atonement. It was meant to cover and pay for any of the sins that weren't previously covered in that year so that God could continue to dwell with the people. And so the high priest would come and an offering would be made for the, to pay the price of the sins of people. And so literally, propitiation in its core means the satisfaction of the wrath of God. In other words, God has to deal with sin And so we're putting this sacrifice in there as a substitute. Why? To pay the price of our sin. Pay the price. So in the Day of Atonement, the the high priest would um, kill an animal and would take the blood of the animal, go at that that time and that time only into the the Holy of Holies, right? Into the the place where God dwelt amongst the people. And in the tabernacle, uh, what they had was the Ark of the Covenant was in there. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box. And inside this wooden box was the Ten Commandments, the the copy of the law. And outside of the box, it was covered in gold. right? It was encased in gold. And on top of that and covered around that was what they called the mercy seat of God. And on top of the mercy seat were these cherubim, these statues of angels whose wings lifted up and kind of bent in towards each other. And they believe that in between these wings or on top of these wings is where God dwelt. It's where he sat. And really, the Ark of the Covenant for the people was symbolic of judgment. They were meant to be terrified of the Ark of the Covenant. That's why if you've ever watched Indiana Jones, bad stuff happens when you touch the Ark of the Covenant, right? Because here is the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, that God sits above it, and what does he, he, he looks down at people and what does he see them through? What's in the Ark of the Covenant? The law, right? He sees people through the law and he says, you don't measure up. But then on the Day of Atonement, the blood would come in and where do you think the high priest sprinkled the blood? On the mercy seat, right? 
And so now when God looks down on the people, He first sees the blood before the law. And therefore, the people are covered. Do you know what the Greek translation of mercy seat is? Propitiation. What is John saying of Jesus? What does Paul say of Jesus when he uses the exact same word in Romans chapter 3? He's saying that Jesus is the mercy seat. The blood of Jesus is sprinkled upon it so that when God looks through us now permanently, He sees us through the sacrifice of Christ. He's our only sacrifice. Only sacrifice. And therefore, naturally, He's a complete sacrifice. It's a final sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10-12, through 12, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says that the sacrifice of Jesus was once for all. In other words, this is not something that has to continue to happen. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. And then it says, and therefore at the end, He what? Sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, that this is truly finished and paid for. The high priest never sat down. He can never sit down. But Jesus is the once-for-all only sacrifice for His people. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, when the writer of Hebrews is going through this comparison of Jesus to, uh, to the mercy seat of the Day of Atonement, he says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, if God was pleased with the blood of the animal, how much more then will He receive the blood of Christ? He's our only sacrifice. Our only sacrifice. And yet, we often look to add to His sacrifice, don't we? Well, yeah, yeah, Jesus did that, but I've also got to be moral. I've also, I've also got to have really great church attendance. I've also, I better not miss any of my devotional times, because otherwise God's going to be angry, right? What are we saying about God? That He's looking down at us through the law. We're denying that Jesus' sacrifice is final when we speak like that. I'm not telling you you shouldn't do those things, but you better not be doing them to earn God's favor. The propitiation allows God to remain just, to not bend His standard of holiness, and yet, in the words of Paul in Romans 3, to justify you and me, to call us not guilty. Do you see the radical importance of this? And then thirdly, Jesus is our only mediator. This is what John writes in chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Right? That's our hope, that we won't sin. What is our reality? That we will sin. My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the Righteous One. How is forgiveness and purity that John writes Jesus offers us possible because the sacrifice is once for all complete and because Jesus continues to function as our mediator? That later today, when the Eagles have a horrible performance and I am sinning on my couch, sinning as a dad, sinning, you know, I sitting as everything other than an Eagles fan. They would call me loyal, probably. 
that Jesus is, and I'm being funny, but Jesus is at the right hand of God saying, it's covered. It's covered. It's covered. Right? This, imagine if Jesus wasn't our only mediator. Imagine if the sacrifice happened and we believed it, and therefore our sin was cleansed, but we better live perfect the rest of our lives. Imagine. But it's not true. right? You can go up and mess up in a huge way, and I'm not suggesting you should do this, but Jesus will constantly be your advocate, your mediator. Right? His mediation, his message, his advocacy is based upon his sacrifice. He is not just the high priest who advocates, but the sacrifice which the high priest gives. He's all of it together. Do you see this? And what this grants for you and me is a simple word called assurance. Assurance. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. Listen to this. But, let me start in 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. Right? So priests die and they no longer can advocate. But, because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Do you see this? That the assurance that you have of the forgiveness that lasts is because that Jesus is your only mediator. Now, when these, these ideas got out, this was radical. Listen to some of the changes that began to happen in the church. The church practiced what they called mass. So mass, mass was, and still remains in the Catholic church, the idea of a continuing propitiation. Right? In other words, that you continue to sin, so we need to continue to make sacrifice for you. Well, the reformers said, no. Nothing could be farther from the truth. And so for them communion meal that we'll celebrate in a minute changed from a sacrifice to a supper. This is a meal we feast on for grace and sustenance not to be forgiven. That is already done. In Luther's day, the thing that he raged against the most of the church was selling indulgences that you could actually, by paying to help build cathedrals, earn some forgiveness for yourself. And Luther said, you cannot buy merit, but Christ reckons it freely. Do you see this? And there was then and remains today a large belief in a fictional reality called purgatory. That believers who believe the gospel, but they don't have enough merit or forgiveness to get to heaven, they got to go work it out in purgatory. But purgatory was this idea where you had to go and be literally purged from the guilt that you still owed. And you hoped that people would pray for you and, and buy indulgences to help you be forgiven so that you could get your way to heaven. But the Reformer said, and rightly so based on the truth from Scriptures that we just said, that there is nothing in your life unatoned for by Christ if you have trusted Him. Nothing. Nothing unatoned for in your life. And then lastly, they went after the priestly class themselves. The function of the priest was to be a go-between between between God and man. So you went to the priest to confess. 
You went to the priest to receive the sacraments. It was only them that could, could bless the, the sacraments and turn them in literally into the body and blood of Christ. And you would receive them and be sustained. Uh, be blessed, be, be propitiated for. But Luther said, well, wait a minute. And the reformer said, Christ is our only mediator. There is no human go-between between you and God. You don't need anyone. You don't need me. You don't need my spirituality. You don't need my holiness. Your effort to get to God is not dependent upon the goodness of anyone else or the purity of anyone else. It stands on the person and work of Jesus alone. And so Luther changed from being a priest to what he called a pastor. And changed from ministering solely the sacraments to offering a ministry of the gospel, of the word. Do you see this radical nature in which if you truly buy into the reality that it is Jesus alone changes everything? Now you're probably sitting there saying, well that's great, but most of us are Protestant now and we've already made those changes. What does it mean for me? It's just as radical, friends. It's just as radical. If you truly believe that it is Jesus alone that is your Savior, it's Jesus alone that is your only sacrifice, Jesus alone that is your only mediator, then you believe that the Gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And yet, I would wage to believe that 100% of us do not live that way, do we? Because theologically, we love Christ alone, but practically, we don't live that way. It's Jesus plus being a good dad or a good husband. It's Jesus plus religious attendance. It's Jesus plus good works being more than our bad works. It's Jesus plus living a moral life. It's Jesus plus being a good kid. It's Jesus plus not breaking the rules. It's Jesus plus this and that. It's Jesus plus you know everything and anything. If you add anything to Jesus, you have adulterated the gospel. Hear it. Anything plus Jesus adulterates the gospel and necessarily removes the power from it. This is radical, but this is the message from Scripture of the truth of the gospel. And then secondly, the writer to Hebrews is careful to tell us that based on the work of Christ, you can go directly to the Father and you ought to go to Him with boldness. This is a different perspective towards God than a God who is judging us. Who's looking at us through the law. He's now looking at us through the blood and says, you're saved. You're safe. In fact, you can come to me. You can call me Abba, Daddy. You're my son and my daughter. Come fully into my presence. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Can I pray with you, church? After we pray, we're going to share this communion meal together. It is the work of Jesus as our Savior, as our sacrifice, as our mediator.
that makes it possible for the chasm between God and man to be satisfied. But listen to what John writes, and we'll close with these last few words. Verse 3, we know that we have come to know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. How do you know that you have been saved by grace through faith that is only Christ if you follow Him? And that's why the oldest expression of the Gospel is the simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. Was Paul right in Romans 10 verse 9? If you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that He's been raised from the dead, you will be saved. See, there is this subtle reality going on through the entire New Testament. Asking the simple question of all who would read it. Who will you serve as King? Who will you honor as Lord? That's why when Paul has written the full message of the Gospel, he turns on a dime and says in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, based on this sacrifice and saving and mediatorial work of Christ, the only thing that you can do is to offer yourself as a living and holy sacrifice. When Calvin left France, he traveled a southerly route to get up to the German town, now French town, of Strasbourg. He was going to study there with Reformation scholars And he went that way because he couldn't take the straight route because he feared he'd be persecuted and maybe even killed. And so he stayed the night with an acquaintance in the Swiss town of Geneva. And this man in Geneva had tried to bring the Reformation to Geneva two previous times and been kicked out of the city. And the third time, for some reason, it stuck. (laughs) But he realized that he didn't have what it took to bring the full message to the city. And so he pleaded with Calvin to stay and be the pastor at Geneva. And Calvin said, thanks but no thanks. I don't want to be a pastor. (laughs) And so this man, uh, in a crooked sort of way, said, God has told me that your life will be cursed if you don't stay. True story. And Calvin said, nope, don't believe you. I'm not staying. But then Calvin, as he was preparing to leave, said, thought to himself, if this man is so earnestly trying to get me to stay, then maybe God has some kind of purpose in this. And so he agreed to stay for a few weeks, and a few weeks became a few months, and a few months became a few years. And he began to institute in the city of Geneva radical change around this single message of Christ alone. That meant not just that we receive Christ as Savior, Not that He is our only sacrifice, not just that He is our only mediator, but that He is our only Lord. And our lives must change as a result of it. People at Geneva, as you and I are, we don't like that message very much. We like the saving message a whole lot. Changing our lives, not so much. And so they eventually kicked Him out. And He said of them, you just want a preacher, not a pastor. And so he left. And shortly after he left, they realized the error of their ways and they begged him to come back. And they begged him hard to come back. And he finally agreed to come back. 
And Geneva was so radically changed by their commitment to the Lordship of Christ that it became a sending reality. The people came to Geneva because they said, John Knox, the the Scottish reformer, said of Geneva, that there was no city that, that epitomized the character of Christ more than Geneva. So they came and were enculturated in the Lordship of Christ and went out. So I ask you this morning, as you've heard again the message of Christ only, are you Calvin's first Geneva or his second? Is Jesus just your Savior or is he your Lord? This is the full call on your life of Jesus only.